We were planning on releasing a different episode this week, but what we're about to say couldn't wait. If you've been listening for a while, you know that we are both biracial daughters of Japanese immigrants. I mean, and if you're new, welcome to the conversation. You are about to hear some real talk. Yeah, because when you're biracial, you're often challenged by pretty much everyone as to just how fill in the blank, in our case, Asian or Japanese, are you? You learn to lean into your own identity hard. And today we're doing just that. Today, we are two Asian American women sitting here, shaken, devastated, and angry about the senseless loss of a life in Atlanta. Yet at the same time that we heard that eight people, including six Asian women, had been murdered in their place of business by a sole white male shooter, we were waiting for the excuses, for the lone shooter story, and for the lack of white accountability. And you know what? We weren't disappointed. I'm shaking my head. Because the impact on the Asian community was one of hate and violence. Regardless of the shooter's story to Asians, this is a hate crime. And the problem here is that we have a long history in the United States of not being able to call hate crimes what they are. And we have a history of not seeing hate when it's directed against the, I'm going to put it in air quotes here, the model minority. We also have a big problem when it comes to unifying together against white supremacy. So today we're going to talk about all of that and more. Buckle up. Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast, the show that helps white women use their privilege to help dismantle systemic racism. We are your very proudly biracial hosts, Sarah and me, Sasha. So Anti-Racism Daily, that weekly email that is fantastic, may have said it best in their recent email newsletter about the lone wolf shooter. And they said, as the world woke up to the news Wednesday morning, a series of new articles explained more about the 21-year-old perpetrator who was arrested and charged with murder. Friends described him as nerdy, from a good Christian family, and very innocent seeming and wouldn't even cuss, according to Newsweek. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution reported that he has a sexual addiction, leading others to report that his mental health might have influenced his decision-making. Police officers in that infamous news conference stated that, quote, yesterday was a really bad day for him, and this is what he did, and that he gave no indicators that this was racially motivated. But as Anti-Racism Daily also pointed out, this is problematic, All of that was problematic because it upholds tenets of whiteness and in doing so perpetuates and continues to uphold white supremacy. Do his Christian faith or his amazing, apparently amazing vocabulary or his alleged innocence mean that what he did was okay? And a side note here, as I was waking up Wednesday morning, one of the first texts that I got was from a friend who asked, when do you think they're going to cite mental illness as the motivation for that shooting? And to be honest, just to interject here, it's not that we discount the seriousness of mental illness, but we know that many, many people have struggled with mental illness and have still managed to not kill anyone. So, ugh. right. And also mental illness cannot be stigmatized to indicate that it is dangerous to the point of needing police intervention, which is what happens to non-white individuals when we continue to use that as an excuse for white male shooters. And one more note regarding the supposed and quoted innocence of the perpetrator. As one commentator on Twitter pointed out, when Tamir Rice was killed for carrying a water pistol, he was called no angel. And let's remember, he was a 12-year-old boy who was murdered on the street. Yet, when this white man kills eight people, he's called innocent. 
and having a bad day. All of this amounts to a centering of the attacker instead of the victims. And it also amounts to a lack of white accountability. And friends, we have a serious white accountability problem in this country. So as you've been talking, Misasha, I mean, I think our listeners probably noticed how important the narrative is that we allow the media to push on us about the shooters in these hate crime scenarios. That is, if the shooter is white. We heard it all week. The shooter had a sexual addiction. He acted for his own personal reasons. He wasn't motivated by a larger narrative. I mean, we have heard that in Columbine, in Sandy Hook, in the South Carolina Black Church shooting. I mean, there they were said they were mentally ill and misunderstood. And also in Kenosha, where hero and innocent and a bullied teenager acting in self-defense. I mean, this happens over and over and certainly happens in many instances of anti-Asian violence. I mean, we could go on. You could go on when you look at what is out there. But when you're hearing this narrative, what it does is it reinforces that we don't have a history of systemic racism in this country, that we don't have a white supremacy problem in this country. There is no accountability when everybody is just seen as a lone wolf, right? If when the white people are seen as a lone wolf, there's no systemic problem. We can bury our heads in the sand. And there is no larger accountability for all of the systems that enabled this shooter or others like him to be able to act in violence and in hate to believe that they're righteous, to be supported by communities that are equally full of hate and violence. So breathing, because guess what? We saw a whole bunch of lone wolves attempt an extremely violent attack on a democracy earlier this year on January 6th. And it was this rhetoric that we've been allowing to dominate how we talk about these hate crimes, especially when they're perpetrated by white people that removes all accountability. We look for the excuses. We are looking for the justification. We want them to be acting alone, but... In reality, they're acting in and upholding the systems that have enabled whiteness to prevail in this country for centuries. Because if you're listening, we have none of that rhetoric for non-white shooters. We're often not even asking about their mental state because they're dead, right? We don't even give them the benefit of the doubt to take them into custody, to give them organic food. Can we roll our eyes even further into the back of our heads and wonder about what systems failed them? We just don't care. What we're saying is we don't care because we are not giving people equal treatment. And so, for example, as noted by the Anti-Racism Daily, a study found that overall terror attacks by Muslims receive 357% more press attention. And that's from The Guardian. So you get more press attention and it's a disproportionate amount when you have certain populations committing the acts of violence. And then the narratives, they differ too, because researchers analyze news coverage of mass shootings in Las Vegas in 2017 and Orlando in 2016. You remember those horrific instances? The Orlando shooting, which was carried out by someone that identifies as Muslim, was allotted more coverage despite the fact that it produced nine fewer fatalities than the Las Vegas shooting. And in addition, newspapers were more likely to frame the Orlando mass shooting as terrorism and link it to the global war on terrorism. And in contrast, most articles for the Las Vegas shooting attempted to humanize Stephen Paddock, who was the white shooter in that case. Right. So in what happened in Atlanta, we heard it said that the shooter said that it was not racially motivated. Regardless of his intent, the impact on the Asian community was one of hate and violence. In a year in which reports of anti-Asian crime have risen 150%, and that's noting incidences reported in 2020 versus 2019, 
where you have 3,800 incidences of hate that have been documented by groups like Stop AAPI Hate, who are committing to cataloging these types of crimes. All of this amounts to Asians are afraid. We are afraid. Asians are being attacked and killed on streets. They are being spat upon and called coronavirus on the basketball court, on public transit, and in places of business. They are being targeted, and that is fueled largely by the words of our former president that were hateful, racist, and untrue. Some of our white friends have expressed surprise that this violence against Asians seems to be escalating. We're not. There has been a history of violence against Asians in this country. If you remember the exclusion acts that were from the 19th century, the Japanese internment in World War II, or even Vincent Chen being beaten to death in Detroit in 1982. But because of the inclusion of Asians in American culture due to the model minority myth, a lot of that violence has not been seen or taken seriously. Yet, in reality, as cultural historian Robert G. Lee has argued, inclusion can and has been used to undermine the activism of other marginalized groups in the United States. In the words of writer Frank Chin in 1974, and he's referring to Asians, whites love us because we're not Black. So PBS NewsHour, in unpacking this history, and this history, we're talking about the history of violence against Asians and myths in history that deals with the inclusion of Asians and sort of the white narrative in this country, provides the following example. In 1943, a year after the United States incarcerated Japanese Americans under Executive Order 9066, Congress repealed the Chinese Exclusion Act. White liberals advocated for this repeal, not out of altruism towards Chinese migrants, but to advocate for a trans-Pacific alliance against Japan and the Axis powers. By allowing for the free passage of Chinese migrants to the United States, the nation could show its supposed fitness as an interracial superpower that rivaled Japan and Germany. So they were all four Chinese coming while they were incarcerating Japanese Americans. Meanwhile, those incarcerated Japanese Americans and camps and African Americans were still held under Jim Crow segregation laws. Clearly, this wasn't a choice to value Asians. It was a political tool used by white people. And I am excited to dive into more of this immigration history, because if you're not familiar with the Chinese Exclusion Act, if you're not familiar with what happened, we will talk about it because we have the information. We will share it with you in upcoming episodes. To follow up on what you're saying, though, Misasha, in her book, Opening the Gates to Asia, a Trans-Pacific History of How America Repealed Asian Exclusion, there's a historian from Occidental College named Jane Hong who revealed how the United States government used Asian immigration inclusion against other minority groups at a time of social upheaval. So just like you were saying, for example, in 1965, Lyndon B. Johnson's administration signed the Hart Seller Act into law. It was like really a well-celebrated law, but the act primarily targeted Asian and African migrants, shifting immigration from an exclusionary quota system to a merit-based point system, which sounds good until you consider what it also did, which was impose immigration restrictions on Latin America. So it was pitting Asians against other people, showing the true cost of this supposed, quote, inclusion. And the other tricky part about it is when a hate crime is perpetrated against a group that white people have largely seen as close to white people, how do you know that it's a hate crime? According to Stop AAPI Hate, that group that you mentioned earlier, verbal harassment, which 
comprised about 68% of the reports and shunning, which is about 20% of the reports, which was like the deliberate avoidance of Asian Americans, make up two largest proportions of the total reported incidents. So how do you prosecute shunning or even verbal harassment when it's not like necessarily directed at one person or when it's not breathtakingly racist in its nature, right? How do you express the fetishizing of Asian women or the attacks that may come out of nowhere and neatly classify those into a hate crime? You know, many of the attacks against Asians have not been able to meet the burden of proof that needs to be met to have something be considered a hate crime. I mean, the FBI categorizes hate crimes as violent acts, That's what needs to be met. And that has been yet another devaluing of Asians in our country. So given that it is hard to quantify hate crimes unless they are really meeting this really strict standard, what can we do? What can you do? And I think the biggest thing is speak up. First and foremost, speak up. We need up standards, especially in situations that are fueled by hate, misogyny, and white supremacy. And some of you may be going like, oh, white supremacy, like these are emotional words here. I understand that. But you know in your gut if something doesn't feel right, if you sense something may be escalating, you know that, listen to your gut and speak up and interrupt. And also on top of that, if outside of those situations where we could really use people standing up for one another, there are other things you can do. One is to follow certain organizations. A lot of organizations are doing the work against white supremacy in Asian American communities, including, we've mentioned it multiple times, Stop AAPI Hate, AAAJ and AAAJC. The long acronym, yeah. Right, like follow NAPAWF and then follow 18 Million Rising. Those are the handles of the organizations you can find on the social media platforms that you are are involved in. Another thing you could do is take action by putting your money where your mouth is. If you really feel like this is something that needs to be addressed, and I hope you do understand that because honestly, we're speaking up early. It's already been escalating and it's not going to get better unless we intervene right now. You can donate to an organization like Asian Americans Advancing Justice in Atlanta, which helps protect the civil and human rights of Asian Americans in Georgia and the Southeast. I volunteered with them for grassroots voting work this past year, and they are fantastic. So I definitely encourage that one. That's awesome. You can also support an organization called Red Canary Song, which is a grassroots collective of Asian and migrant sex workers. You can definitely attend a bystander intervention training program hosted by Hollaback and Asian Americans Advancing Justice. So if you feel like what we said at the beginning, which was speak up, you feel like you need a little more confidence around that, do a bystander intervention training program. And then again, going back to it, talk with people in your community. Make sure that people out there feel like they matter so that they don't get to this horrific stage of perpetuating the cycle of white supremacy, of feeling like they need to put other people down in order to feel better about themselves. We really believe that if we can get back to humanity together, we can make a difference. And those community relationships, you know where they are. Go make that effort and build those connections. And before we get to our final thoughts on that community note, if you are close with people who have been affected by this with Asians, with Asian Americans, this might be a great time to reach out and just say, hey, I'm here for you. Or if you have people who are in your workplace, in your school settings, you know, this is a hard time. Don't expect them to show up in the same way that they might otherwise, you know, give them grace, give them support, show that you're there for them with your words and with your actions. I appreciate you saying that because I think it parallels what we 
had talked about and what I think society talked about after the murder of George Floyd and the solidarity we wanted to show to our Black friends and colleagues and fellow citizens in this country. This is very personal and it should feel personal ideally for everybody when you see this sort of hate, but it is especially personal for those who identify with characteristics they absolutely cannot change about their bodies when they're targeted for looking a certain way. Completely. I'm glad you said that. And on to our final thought. With this, we come back again to white supremacy because let's not pretend otherwise. That fundamentally is fueling these attacks against Asians. But it's also the same fuel that fuels attacks against Black people in our country, against Latinx, against Indigenous people, and anyone else in this country who identifies as non-white. When we give white shooters a pass, when we fail to hold white people accountable and the systems that perpetuate harmful whiteness accountable, we are never going to fix what is broken and what is fundamentally hurting all of us. So if we want to make things different, we have to stand together. An attack perpetrated by white supremacy hurts all of us. So let's keep learning. Let's keep standing up for what is right. Let's keep fighting because we need to stop all hate. Let's fix our white accountability problem in this country. Love what you're hearing? Follow us at the Dear White Women podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts to get our fresh new insights on how you can help dismantle systemic racism one conversation at a time every Wednesday. Do you love learning via visuals? Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Dear White Women Podcast and at Twitter at DWW Podcast. And do you want us to keep making good work? Support our Patreon and keep an eye out for opportunities to use our webinars, DEI consulting work, and more if you want us to help bring change into your own spaces.